we've been going through a series here um, for about almost two months now. It's what is a healthy church? And, and it's kind of one of those, those series that's, that's kind of good for the church to hear. But you might go, well, I'm not part of this church. Um, I'm not even sure I want to be in a church or be part of a church. I still think this is good for you to hear. I'm going to tell you a secret, and it's not a secret that we keep very well because we actually put it in the parent handbook. But for some parents, that's the safest place to put a secret because they don't read it. They just sign it. Not that you're one of those parents. But the reason our preschool exists is not just because we love your kids, and we do, and we want to help your kids get ready for school and life, because we do. But it's because we believe that you give your children, and you give your marriage, and you give your families a better chance of being successful, a better chance of being fulfilling, a better chance of being filled with love and purpose if you're connected to a healthy church. And what we want to be is we want to be a healthy church. No church is perfect, and we're far from perfect. But we're learning about what it means to be a healthy church. And as you're listening today, I want you to listen. And I want you to think, like, as you're hearing these things, whether you believe them or not, at least think this. Would that be a good place? Would those kind of people be the kind of people that I could be around? That will not just help me, not just help my, my spouse, but will help my children and help us all be, to, to be stronger because we're together. So if you look on the back of the program, I think I included it on the back. You have the list of, not of the program, but of the notes. If you look on the back of the notes that are inside the program, you'll see the different words we've used to describe a healthy church. And, and by the way, if you want to listen to these, you can go on a, a Apple Podcasts and various other podcast places and hear the whole series um, if you want to hear more about what this is about. But you'll see different words there. And I kind of put all those words together to where we are right now to come up with this definition of a healthy church. A healthy church is full of living sacrifices. Living sacrifices means people who are, who are surrendered to God and to following and living the way God would want us to live. So full of living sacrifices, committed to discipleship. And discipleship is, is, means that we want to learn more about who God is, not just so we can have knowledge, but so that we can become more like Jesus, that we can live and love the way Jesus did. So we're committed to discipleship, and we humbly, part of the, one of the hallmarks of a healthy church is humility, humbly serving one another in love. Well, that's where we are. And this next word is a word that, you know, it's not a word that just rolls off the tongue, and sometimes it takes some kind of thinking, but it kind of summarizes all this. It's the idea of a relational church. And I thought about this. I thought about how complicated we can sometimes make things. And I also thought about how humbling it is when someone can come along and take a very thing, a thing that we think is very complex and complicating and make it very simple. 
probably my favorite book and my favorite movie is Lord of the Rings. And if you've ever read the book Lord of the Rings, it is like, I don't know, a couple thousand pages. And it's not just a bunch of pages, it's even more than that. That Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, the author, he took all this time to actually create another world. He created languages. He did all of these things. He created history for the characters that never appears in the book. But he did it all because he wanted it to be so real. And so he, wrote, he writes this book. And, and I think, like, if you see the book and all the complexities of the book and, and, um, and, you, and you just kind of uh, um, read through the stories and you see all the themes and all of that, you would see, like, the depth and all the effort that was put into it. But I sometimes wonder if J.R. Tolkien was still alive, and especially if he met my mom. My mom had the way of summarizing things in a way that I don't know if it was overly simplified. But if she met J.R. Tolkien and, and J.R. Tolkien said, maybe you've heard of me, I wrote this, this trilogy called Lord of the Rings. It made it into movies. My mom would have probably said, oh, isn't that that story about those little people trying to destroy a ring? Tolkien would have probably looked at her and thought like, is that all you got out of all my life's work? Bunch of little people trying to destroy a ring. Well, when someone simplifies something, sometimes it makes us feel like all the rest of that, what goes on is, is, is just not that important. It's just details. And the truth is, is oftentimes when we, when we strip away a lot of the things that we don't need, we do end up with the essence of what something is. And when we, when we look at what a healthy church is, and we, you, can, you can complicate it all you want, but it, it ultimately comes down to this. A healthy church has healthy relationships. Unhealthy church has unhealthy relationships. If I wanted to figure out how healthy this church is, I would ask myself, how healthy are the relationships? I wouldn't ask ourselves, how nice is our facility, or, or how great our tech is that now we can live stream, or, or how wonderful our worship team is, or how many people attend, or how many programs we have, or how great our preschool is. No, none of that matters. That doesn't, that's not an indication of a healthy church. A healthy church has healthy relationships. Unfortunately, we live in a world that values relationships <clears throat> on a certain point. They value relationships, but they value them when they serve some kind of self-interest. Think about this. Think about all the relationships you have. And I would, I would venture to guess that you do not have one single relationship that doesn't somehow serve your self-interest. And I would venture to guess that if that relationship or the other person in that relationship stopped serving your self-interest, that that relationship would end. It's not that it's wrong. 
It's just that it's not what God would want in a healthy church. Our relationships can't be based on self-interest. It can't be based purely on what I'm getting out of it. It doesn't mean that we don't get things out of relationships we should. It doesn't mean that relationships can't meet self-interest. They do. It just means that that can't be the primary motivation for relationships. And unfortunately, it is. For most people, that is the primary motivation for relationships. You ever hear this phrase, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours? What's the primary motivation? Mutual self-interest. Take it away, there's nothing left. Well, we were talking this morning in my Bible study in the Sunday school class, and we were reading in Romans chapter 5, and, and we, were, we were reading about what God did for us, and what he do, did for us in sending Jesus Christ and making a way for us to have peace with him. And what we see there is we see this, this, this pure example of something done not out of self-interest. Because it calls us in, those, in, in, in that passage in Romans 5, it calls us helpless. Helpless means we can't do anything for God, and yet he still saves us. It even calls us ungodly. In other words, we're the opposite of what God is. We're not the same. And he still saves us. And it even calls us enemies. That in fact, we are actively going against what God would want. And yet, he still saves us. And he saves us because he loves us. And he saves us so that we might be able to love the way that he loves, so that we also might be able to love the helpless, those that don't do anything for us, that can't do anything for us, to, to, to love and serve those who are unlike us, and to even love and serve those who are our enemies. Well. If you've been here, you know we've been in Romans chapter 12 and we're, we're almost done with this series, one more week. And as we've talked about, Paul is telling this church at Rome 2,000 years ago, this church that's, that all they're trying to do is live out their faith. All they're trying to do is, is love each other and care about each other and, and care about the people around them and meet people in need. That's all they're trying to do and they're actively being persecuted. They're being accused of crimes they didn't commit. And pretty soon, most of them are either going to be forced to leave the city or they're going to be tortured and killed. This is the church that Paul's writing to. In fact, Paul's eventually going to join them there, and he himself will die too. But here, he's saying, this is what God did for you. He took the first five chapters. This is what God did for you. This is how you can have it. And now he's saying in chapter 12, this is what it looks like. This is how you then live. And so here we are, all the way down in verse 14. 
And it says this, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I like these kind of Bible verses because I don't have to work too hard. It's just kind of right there. I just pretty much repeat what it says and then throw in some things to make sure you guys think I did a little work. Not heavy lifting here. What does a healthy church do? A healthy church blesses its enemies. Who are, who are our enemies? I don't know. Who you might think the enemies of the church is. There are enemies of the church. There are enemies of things that we stand for. There are enemies of people who believe in God, who think believing in God is actually holding back our society. That we need to let go of these, these childish myths, these, these, these legends, these beliefs that helped us through and we were kind of primitive and, and savage and couldn't find our way. And now that we've reached this, this point of enlightenment, we need to leave that behind because it's, it's hurting us. And you, you're hearing this more and more. It used to just be said at universities or in think tanks or behind the scenes in closures, but now people are publicly saying it. If you tell people you believe in God, if you say you live your life for God, not just some abstract understanding of, oh, some higher power or some you know, kind of nebulous understanding of love, but if you tell them you believe in God, and especially if you tell them you believe in Jesus Christ and you are going to follow his word, many people are going to look at you and think that you're the ones holding us back from being this great society that we can be. We have enemies, and they're getting bolder. And usually when someone says you have enemies, then you go, all right, man, how do we take them on? What's next? We'll work out? What are we going to do? Passing out weapons, pastor? We're going to have a drill afterwards? Going to the shooting range? How are we going to take on our enemies? Well, we're going to love them. Who wants to be in that army? Who wants to be in that army? In fact, we're going to bless them. You know what blessing means here? This word in, in the Greek? It literally means just good words. That's all it really means. It's actually the same word that we use, eulogy. So when someone gives a eulogy, the misconception is some people think that's, like, that's a, biograph, a biography of the person's life at a funeral. It's not. Eulogy means good words, praise. It's where we try to capture what is best about that person who's died and, and tell others. But the way it's being used here when it says bless, it means this. When you think of your enemies and you bless, you're actually praying. And you are praying to God that God will bless them. 
that God will bestow favor on them. I, I'm good about going praying to God, but it's like, oh God, could you uh, please punish them? Get their attention. Hurt them in some way. You said vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Take vengeance, God, please, please, please. Paul says, bless them. Ask God to give them favor. Wow. Not sure I can do that. You see, blessing doesn't mean you agree with them. And it doesn't mean you validate what they do. That's kind of the, the misconception that's kind of been in the world and it's growing in the world that, that you either agree and love someone or you disagree and you hate. People have long thought this, but people now, especially younger people, they are willing to say it. You say something negative about somebody, they go, oh, you're hating. You disagree with what somebody did. Oh, you're hating. No, it's not hate. But that's kind of the idea. You see, I can still ask God to bless you even if I disagree with you. And do you know why? Because I can love you. I can sincerely love you. And part of love means I want the best for you even if I disagree with you. Doesn't mean that we agree or we validate. And I want you to see what he says is. He says, he doesn't use the word enemy. He says, bless those who persecute you. And he's using in Greek, in, in English, it just comes out as this present tense, persecute you. And we, we kind of don't know exactly what, he, what he's talking about. It could, it could mean different things about as to when the persecution takes place. But what he's, when he uses this tense here, he's using this tense of that saying like, as they are persecuting you, bless them. It's what we've been talking about, about why God's love is so impossible for human beings to do. We cannot do it. Anybody that says all religions are about love, do not understand what the Bible teaches about love. Because the Bible says it is impossible. God's standard is so high that we are not just to love our enemies, which is already really high. But he's telling them to love their enemies while they're hurting you, while they're chasing you, while they're throwing you into prison, while they're lying about you, while they're killing you. God's love is not for the weak. Not in this sense. It is not for the cowardly. God's love will, will take you to places and put you in situations that will challenge everything that you are. And you'll realize that it's impossible it's impossible for us to do this on our own. Bless. Bless means to, to love and means to help. 
I don't know that I have real enemies, you know, people that, that know me personally and kind of want me dead. But I know I've offended people, and I know people have not agreed with me, and they, and they, and they, they, they don't like things that I've done or things that they think I've done. And some of them live in this neighborhood. And I go by their houses, I drive by their houses, I walk by their houses, and you know what I do every single time? I pray for them. I don't pray that God will, will shake them up and show them how wrong they are and then they'll realize how right I was and everything will be good because everybody will know how right I was. No, I just pray for them. I'm not, I'm not gonna tell you, that's not, that's not for me. I know what I want to do. I know what I want to do when people wrong me. I know what I want to do when people misunderstand me. I know what I want to do. But I know what the Bible tells me to do. It says to bless. And if this is asking me to bless people that might try to kill me, shouldn't I bless people who just offend me? Shouldn't I bless people who do anything less than killing me? I think so. That's what healthy churches do. Oh, we, 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 we try, we're like, you know, we try to kind of work this around like, oh God, you know, um, I want you to bless them, but I want you to bless them by punishing them. And then they will know the right way. Think about that. Think about that. Think about if you want God to bless them by punishing them so that they will know the right way, why don't you just ask God to teach them the right way? That punishment part seems to be more for your satisfaction. Healthy churches bless their enemies. They don't want God to hurt people. They want God to help them. They want them to grow. Well, we look at this, this next verse in verse 15, and it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Paul wrote something very similar in 1 Corinthians when he was talking about the body of Christ, and he was saying that we are members of one another, that, that, that our relationships should be so close to one another that we will, we will weep when one of us weeps. We will grieve when one of us grieves and will rejoice when one of us rejoices. Understand what that means. Here, Paul doesn't unpack it, but in 1 Corinthians, he unpacks it more. He's not saying if you come and tell somebody like, oh man, I think you know, my best friend is gonna die. It's not, weeping with them is not that you feel sorry for them. It's not that you come alongside of them and just say, yeah, all right. No, it means that you're so close to them that when they hurt, you hurt. And when you hear this, you go like, why would I want to be part of that? Why would I want to be part of a bunch of people who obviously at least one a week is going to have a hurt and I got a hurt with them? Why would I want to? 
Well, part of it is because we are all going to hurt. And a healthy church is one where, where we don't have to do it alone. That we don't just have to rely on our family. And if you've ever been in a situation, I remember when my, my mom died and my dad died, that, that at times, you know, we, we were so overwhelmed with grief and thoughts that how do we, how do we help each other? How do all of us who are so, so close to that person who's died help each other? And it's such a blessing to know that I had brothers and sisters in Christ that would come alongside and help us and grieve with us because we're all going to hurt. But you see, there's the other side of it. The other side of it is rejoice with those who rejoice. And again, it's not just rejoice for them. It's not just going, hey, um, yeah, you had this great victory. All right, good for you. No. It is that the healthy church is so close that any victory, any achievement, anything good that's done, it is as though we have all done it. And we can feel good about that. We just had this men's conference this past week in the last couple of days. And just from some of the people, not from this church, but people from some of the men from other churches coming and talking to me and telling me how much of a blessing our church is. And I'm going to tell you, the churches, people who came from the other churches, some of those churches are 10 times our size. They could, they could do a men's conference, but God gave us the resources and the vision and the ability to do these men's conferences. And it was a great, great couple of days. And it was because so many in this church came together to do it. Oh, there were others, volunteers from other churches, and they were wonderful too. But they all came together. But you know you're part of a healthy church. If you're a member of Wildlife Baptist Church, you know you're a healthy part of this church. If you know that was your victory too, that you feel good about that, you feel good about your church because even though you personally weren't involved, you know your family was doing something that was impacting the kingdom. That's what it is. Paul uses that body imagery, and, and it kind of breaks down because in our bodies, the only thing that can really think is our brain. But he's using that imagery. And the imagery is, it's kind of like, you know, I like to run, and, and it's like if, if I ran a, a 5K, and, and maybe I, I ran my best time I've ever run in my life, and, and I'm done, it's almost like, my hand shouldn't be like, well, good for you, feet. You did a great job, but I didn't do anything. I just kind of hung around. No. The hand rejoices with the feet because the body accomplished something. It's so hard for us to get because we think so much in terms of individuals and individual achievement. And honestly, some of us don't want people to share in our achievements. We just want them to pat us on the back and celebrate with us. 
but we don't really want them to think they had anything to do with it. You guys know that I coached Kalani's cross-country team, and, and yesterday, you know, we had our, our league championship, and our boys happened to win the OA championship. And so I do what I do every week. I send a report to the parents, and, and in the parents, in the report to them, I thank them. Thank you, parents, for, for what you've done. I, I make it a point to thank not just the seven who get to run in the meet, but I try to thank all of the runners because they all are part of a team. And then, and then one of the parents wrote back to me an email and said, oh, thank you, coaches. And I'm just going, if, if I was kind of one of the runners and full of myself, I would be like, why are you thanking each other? Mom, I didn't see you out there sweating. Dad, coach, we were the ones, right? That'd be the attitude. But I love that attitude of, among the parents and the, and, the, and the coaches and what we're trying to engender in the, in the students. You know, they, they, they took a team picture. If you look in the, um, the newspaper today, you'll see a team picture of the seven boys who, who won. But after they took that picture, I didn't know which one they were going to use from the newspaper. I didn't even know the newspaper was there. But, but they were taking the picture, and they were kind of celebrating. And we had three guys that were our alternates. And they were kind of hanging back. Like, they didn't know what to do. I'm like, guys, you're part of this team. Get in the picture. You didn't run today, but you're part of the team. Healthy church has that kind of attitude. And see, even though our grieving might be multiplied, so is our rejoicing. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Healthy churches. In healthy churches, you find people who aren't just friends with people who are like them. They don't just associate with people who are kind of at their same level, whatever they think their level is. But in healthy churches, people associate with each other regardless. It doesn't matter if, if someone owns a Fortune 500 company or if someone doesn't even have a job. In the church, those distinctions should be erased. It doesn't matter if someone has a PhD and someone else barely got out of high school. It doesn't matter. Those distinctions are erased. He's saying don't be haughty. Haughty means, it literally has this idea of being high like a mountain, like you're above everyone else. There's no. No, associate with everyone. Make everyone feel welcome. And we all have our prejudices. We all have those people that we just can't, oh, it's so hard to be around them. We, have all, we all have those people that we would kind of like rather avoid. Oh, we'll be nice to them, we'll be cordial, but we won't associate and we won't be friends. If we're a healthy church, we are a healthy church with the high and the low. 
healthy churches. Wow. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Healthy churches do not seek justice, and they do not seek revenge. Here's a good rule, and I don't know who told me this first, so I don't want to give credit to anybody. I'll just claim I made it up. If you're a Christian, and you have a problem with always wanting justice, 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 start by telling God, God, deal with me first with justice. Do not deal with me with grace. Do not deal with me with mercy. Do not deal with me with forgiveness. Deal with me with justice. Give me what I deserve, and then I'm going to pray that you bring justice upon everyone else. Do you know why that's a good test? Because if you actually pray it, and God actually does it, and gives you justice, you won't be around to pray that God will give everyone else justice. Healthy churches don't seek justice or revenge because we are all children of grace. We are not here because we're smarter or better or in any way superior. We're here because, because we expressed faith in Jesus Christ and God came into our lives and made us new. Anything that's of worth that we have is because of him. It is not because of us. We do not seek justice. We always do what is honorable. Healthy churches. It's, it's hard, you know, and because there's a part of us that just wants to see people get their due. They do something wrong, we want them to get paid back. And if God's not going to do it, then we're going to be the ones to bring justice. No. When we deal with our enemies, we always do what is honorable. We always do what is good. We always act in love. I told this story at the men's conference, and it's, it's, it's about this guy named Dirk Wilhelm. Dirk Wilhelm was, was a, he, he was around in the 1500s, and if you know a little bit of history, at that time is when the Reformation took place, and, and what happens is, you know, you have the Catholic Church, and then you have Martin Luther and others that are, that are trying to point out some of the problems in the Catholic Church, and of course the Catholic Church doesn't want to hear about it, and so they eventually break away. And so you have these reformers, but not just those, ref you have those reformers, but then you have some more radical reformers. And the more radical reformers, what makes them different is they want to they look at the Bible and they want to say, we want to do what the Bible says. And what they saw in the Bible is they couldn't see that infant baptism was allowed. They saw that what should happen is you should have faith in Jesus Christ and then be baptized. That's why they're called Anabaptists, re-baptized. And so they, they they start to do this, they start to practice this, and Dirk Wilhelm is one of these guys, and he's in his early 20s, and, and he's doing it, and then, of course, nobody likes it. The Catholics don't like it. The Lutherans don't like it. All these other people, they don't like what they're doing. And so, 
he gets, he gets arrested, gets put in prison. He's tortured. And then what Dirk Wilhelm does is he finds a way to escape. So he escapes. And he's running. And he's getting away. And the prison that he was in was actually not a prison. It was kind of like a palace. And so there was a moat. And, and there was, uh, the moat had frozen over because it was winter. And, and he runs. And he gets across the ice. A guard sees him. And the guard chases after him. But the guard is heavier than Dirk. And, and when the guard steps on the ice, he falls in. Here's Dirk. I can run to freedom. I can make every reason to do it. I can say, look, I'm, I'm trying to live for truth. I can spread the truth. I can live the rest of my life and help others. I can do all of that. Or I can turn back and help this guy who wants to take me to prison. Well, you know, I wouldn't be telling you this story if Dirk kept running. Dirk stopped, turned around, pulled the guy out. Pulled the guy out and he's arrested, taken back to prison, tortured again, eventually burned at the stake. Why? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? It's because Jesus Christ had so changed his life that he had to do what love would compel him to do, and he had to love his enemies, even if it meant his own freedom and even his own life. Oh, he could have argued for justice. He could have argued for revenge. He could have said, look, God is punishing my enemies. Good for them. But he doesn't. Healthy churches, they live like Dirk Wilhelm. They don't seek justice or revenge. And finally, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Healthy churches always seek reconciliation and peace. Christians in a healthy church always work toward solutions. They always try to work out their problems. They do everything they can. They do not stop. It might take weeks. It might take months. It might take years. But they always pray for reconciliation. And they always work towards reconciliation. And we have to understand that this is so important because in reconciliation, we reflect who God is. That God is a reconciling God. That God, that we had broken our relationship with God. That we were rejecting Him. We were creating our own gods. We were going our own way, not believing in Him at all. And He, and he worked to reconcile with us. We show the world who God is when we reconcile. Our witness as a church depends on our relationships, depends on our love. It depends on us always working towards reconciliation because we're not perfect and we're going to make mistakes and we're going to have arguments and we're going to have disagreements. 
and we're going to hurt each other's feelings. But we always work towards reconciliation. We're always improving. And I'm going to give you three things I think everybody here can do to help this church be a healthy church. First one, that we will make new friends. When's the last time you made a new friend at this church? Don't answer. Just think. We will make new friends. We'll make new ones. The second thing is, we will invest in our existing friendships. We will nurture them. We will make them better. We'll make them stronger. And third, we will fix the broken ones. If we're really committed to being a healthy church, we're going to do all three of these things. Let's pray.